Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. My name is Martin Duesenberry. And I'm Birgit Tremelvena. In this season, we're focusing on the theme of wealth and the writing of history. This comes out of a big conference that was held in the summer of 2019 in Zurich uh, under the auspices of the Swiss Historical Association meeting. Uh, And we're delighted to be joined today by one of the keynote speakers from that conference, Professor Joel Kay from Bernard College. Joel, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk today about one of the Uh, themes that lies behind our discussion of wealth over the last few days, uh, which is the relationship between wealth and knowledge. How is wealth measured? Uh, We've already heard about how wealth is distributed. We've talked about the relationship between labor and wealth, uh, wealth and growth. But we're really interested today now about the relationship between wealth and ideas. Um, And we'll come on in a minute to the idea that there was a new model developed in the 13th and 14th centuries to describe uh, the working of the markets in new ways. But before we get to that, could we first just have a little bit of historical context? There was a commercial revolution in the Middle Ages. Can you say a little bit about what that was? Yes, the the term is not mine. The term was invented 30 or 40 years ago um, by economic historians to, to... encapsulate a rather remarkable economic growth that began somewhere in the, in the, in the shadows of the late 11th century, uh, gathered steam over the course of the 12th century, and came to its fruition really over the course of the 13th century, and began to fade uh, in the beginning of the 14th century and then hit a wall in the middle of the 14th century. Uh, we're talking about rapid development in commercialization, in urbanization, in monetization, um, and in market development across, across pretty much across Europe, but that, that was centered primarily in, in the rapidly growing urban centers of Italy and France, and England and Germany uh, as well. Right, so that was the sort of economic and social background to the period. What was uh, the relationship of that changing society to the way that uh, scholars in particular thought about society? Um, They were very much involved in it. Um, One of the things that we sometimes missed about scholars is that they were usually uh, connected to universities. And the very purpose of the university was to train administrators uh, whether in, uh, for the church or for the city or for the uh, monarchy. And so these scholars were directly involved in, in economic life, in social life. Um, they had tasks such as feeding their own colleges. They were, they were actually training as administrators while they were students at the university. And the university had no administration. Um, the professors or the, or the masters themselves were the administration of the university. So they had, to be, they had to interact with the marketplace on many, many levels. And this is across the board um, at the universities, the growing universities, Montpellier, Paris, Oxford in this period. And is there a tension between the theological training that these scholars have and what they're seeing in the real world? Yes, um, because what they're seeing is new. 
Um, they, they have to make sense of what they're seeing, what they're living in. It's not just what they're seeing. They're, they're, they're being moved by it. Uh, and they can't help but be moved by it. Uh, theology moves slowly. Um, theology is based in, in, in ancient texts and uh, an ancient tradition. And it, it takes a while for it to make sense of what's happening. Uh, law is more receptive, more sensitive to the particulars of life as it, as it needs to be. And so the lawyers adapted more quickly and made more quickly made more sense of what was going on than the theologians. Um, what's, what's remarkable is that it does influence the theologians, and you can see it happening by the mid-13th century. Um, but as I've suggested, by the late 13th century with someone uh, like Peter of John Olivi, um, he is a theologian. Moreover, he's a Franciscan. He's sworn to poverty. Uh, he never touches money. He never. He's, he is not engaged in the commercial uh, life of, of the normal student at Paris or Oxford. Uh, nevertheless, he is. Uh, his task is to work with the bourgeois. His task is to confess them. And as a leader of the Franciscans, he's actually he wrote this treatise. I'm, I'm sure in part for the confessors, for his fellow confessors, who had to deal with this new class, this new very self-conscious merchant estate. Um, the Franciscans were worked in the city, and they brought Christianity to this city class. And so they simply couldn't write off everyone engaged in commerce. They had to make some way of allowing them to to perform their task, which was now perceived to be a very positive task, um, without condemning them, without uh, without condemning them. So let's go into a little bit more detail about this treatise you mentioned. What is its name? When is it written? And what is Olivi arguing in it? It's written <clears throat> sometime in the early 1290s. It's called the Tractatus, Tractatus de Contractibus. Um, it's also got a, a Treatise on, it's a treatise on usury and a treatise on contracts. Um, it's a very unusual writing for Olivier, whose most of his writing is purely theological, commentaries on the Bible, and um, extraordinarily uh, complex thinking, uh, religious thinking. Now, this is a almost, this is not quite a throwaway, but this is quite unusual. It was not thought to be Olivier's until it was, it, people are still surprised People who know his work are still, still sometimes surprised that he actually wrote this. So you just described that he normally dealt with other things and that it was very complicated to understand what was going on and what he was seeing. How did he rise to the task of describing new things out in the world? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, again, it's a surprise. Um, he's not, again, he's not just a Franciscan, he's part of the rigorous wing of the Franciscans. So he's, he's even uh, against the kind of accommodation between the Franciscans and the papacy over the, the acceptance of property. Um, he, 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 he worships his founder, St. Francis, who's committed to a absolute poverty. So it's, it's quite a surprise. But again, his task is to confess. Um, one of the things that the Franciscans do at, at, at the end of a bourgeois life 
is go to their deathbed and hear their confessions and 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 give them hear their penance and give them penance. Um, and he's very conscious, and I'm sure other Franciscans were as well, that they had to make some room for what they what people were actually doing rather than simply condemning their the whole way of life. So could you give a concrete example of how he describes dealing with this new idea of wealth? Yes. In the beginning of the Tractatus, he begins with a f f very uh, violent uh, accusations and charges against any kind of usury. So he wants to establish that he's not going in a new direction. Uh, the, 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 the opposition to usury was absolutely uh, solidified within church law and theology. And usury is simply the charging for interest on a loan. Um, loans should be made out of love of neighbor, loans should be made out of a, concern, a general social concern, loans should not be made to make profit off of. And the idea is that since you know precisely what the amount of a loan is, it's very easy to insist on the exact repayment of that price. One penny more was considered to be usury. Uh, of, uh, in, in their terms, would be a violation of the requirement for equality in, a, in, a, in exchange, which was absolutely universal. Um, but he, he, and he, he condemns usury in every possible way. But then he recognizes that merchants constantly are, are he won't say that they're lending money to each other, because if he does that, then, he, then they cannot escape the sin of usury. So he simply transfers the terms to say that they're buying and selling money from each other. And once it's not a loan, once it's a sale, then things get very complicated. Uh, no one actually knows the values of things in sales. And so you can't require the same strict equality as you do with a loan. So that's the important, one of the really important things that he does. He's, he shifts the idea of, of quote-unquote loans between merchants to talk about them as sales. And if there's sales, then he says there's a market in the sales. And it would be natural for merchants to then follow their own market that they've developed back and forth as they are exchanging money back and forth as one goes on a trip and another one comes back from a trip and has some extra capital and wants to invest in somebody else's uh, commercial adventure. So you've used now the word equality several times. The, the Latin is... Equalitas. Uh, thank you. And um, you're making then an argument in your book that there is a new model that is emerging from such descriptions of the world. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, very much. The... The, the, the speed and the complexity of commercial ventures over the course of the 13th century means that old, old definitions of what, e what constitutes equality in exchange simply don't work anymore. Um, to give you just an example of, of this commercial revolution, by the end of the 13th century, there are a half dozen Italian banking houses that are bigger than anything, uh, that, uh, bigger than the Medici. Uh, more, more factors, more partners, more uh, international, more capital. Uh, this is by the end of the 13th century. 
so this is this the old notions of one-to-one -one equality between exchanges is just doesn't work anymore. So they have to constant, but they don't give up the ideal of equality. That's that's totally established within church law and theology. So they have to ultimately, over the course of the 13th century, expand the very definition of what equality can be. And that's one of my central points. Because equality, their word equalitas, is our word balance. And so what they're doing literally is expanding the very potentialities of balance and the possibilities of balance as they're forced to do by the, what's happening in the dynamism of the marketplace. And what exactly does this new idea, this new model of balance enable? Well, <clears throat> I believe that it's, it's uh, make the point that no one ever talks about it. No one ever says, I have a new model of balance and therefore. Uh, I'm not even sure they're particularly conscious of it. What they're conscious of is that they're, that clearly they're seeing the world in a new way. Uh, and they've, made, they've expanded their sense of what balance can be, what equalitas can be. And that transfers, since equalitas is so central, the ideal of equality, the ideal of balance is so central to virtually every discourse, every medieval discourse. Once this idea has been expanded, it, 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 it expands in every discourse. And in, in some ways, the very fact of it being beneath the level of verbal expression allows it even more power within the mind because it's, it's happening with people are not quite, if they were conscious that it was happening, they may actually have resisted against it. They may have said, we can't do this, or there's strictures against this, but it's something that's going on really beneath the level of consciousness. Can you give an example of what feels this new model of balance is being expressed in? Is it only in economics? No, no, no. And, and it's, um, I, I see it first in the field of, I see the, this new model of equilibrium, which is, which is one of the things I work with, one of the concepts I work with. I can see its elements first expressed in the economic writings of Olivi uh, and others, uh, Matthew of Aquasparta and uh, uh, um, Godfrey of Fontaine in the late 13th century and developing over the 14th, first half of the 14th century. But in my book, uh, if it were only in economics, I don't think it would be, have the importance that I, I think it does have. In my book, I found it in, in discipline after discipline. And I could only treat so many, so I have a couple of chapters on medieval political thought, uh, especially with the extraordinary work of Marsilius of Padua. Uh, I have it in the field of medical theory, and I have it in, in what they called natural philosophy, but we, what we call science. So in all kinds of scientific speculations, we can see an entirely new way of envisioning the world and imagining how the world works. And I can, and to my mind, I think this new model of equilibrium is at the root of these new ways of seeing and imagining. And we should just add here, the book you're referring to is A History of Balance, 1250 to 1375, The Emergence of a New Model of Equilibrium and Its Impact on Thought. It was published in 2014. So what you just said now is very interesting for the idea of the writing of history, which is also part of our interest here for the podcast. And you said a couple of times that you're not even sure that the writers themselves were conscious about 
this new model and probably also not explicitly use the term. So, so what does it mean for your writing, for the writing of a history of a balance, where you have to interpret something that is not in a written text, for instance? <laughs> well, that's the question. That's the problem. Um, it turned out to be, when I first saw it, I first, first intuited it, I first began, I recognized that there was some connection between these texts that I was reading, especially the most exciting, the ones that were most exciting to me, the most that I thought were, were deepest and most inventive and most innovative. Uh, I sensed the connection, um, and slowly it came to me that the central ideal was equalization or balance, as we would call it, and that that's what had changed from even even just less than a generation before, that these thinkers that I were that I were, was interested in, that I were interested in, could see things and could imagine things that were simply unimaginable just a generation earlier. And so I started with the idea and the intuition that this notion of equalization of balance was at the center of it. And then, as historians do, I tested myself over the more than a dozen years of writing it. So I would pick up a text and I would look at it. Does this work? Does this actually conform to what I thought it would? Uh, would? Does it work the way I thought it would? And I got enough encouragement from my own testing. People sometimes say that historians can't test in the laboratory. Of course we can't, but we test ourselves all the time. And my, I did this knowing that the human mind is extraordinarily capable of, uh, of um, uh, synthetic thinking, that we can make sense, we can put things together. It's, we, ha we can't quite trust ourselves and our own sense of uh, how, how well things are working for us. But when I came across texts that didn't have it, that I thought would have it, I realized that I was being fairly honest about what, what it looks like when, what it looks like, or what it feels like. And when I say feel, because I'm, historians also work with feel as well as, as words. They work with uh, these larger things, these intuitions. Historians use his intuitions often. So does that mean in a way that a history of thought is also a history of sense? Absolutely. Um, I, this is, I use the, balance is a sense. Um, and, and somehow, and I, again, I have the texts. The texts are what I have. So I can simply make my arguments in chapter after chapter. Here's what was said before. Here's what's being said now. Look what's changed. And, and, and you can do this very closely. You can do this phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word. And that's what you use. And then anybody who reads the, the book can test it. Uh, but I must say, I'm, I'm, I, I want to do more than that in this. I want to make, do more than simply make this claim in the book. I, and perhaps this is, uh, this is going too far, but I, I, th I think I found something here. And I would like, one of the reasons I gave the talk on the subject here today is because I'm hoping that there's some young historian in the audience who will say, hmm, maybe I can look for that in, in whatever culture. It can be Japanese culture, it can be Chinese culture, it can be Islamic culture. Balance is everywhere. 
The problem is not to say, oh, I see balance, because everywhere you look, at every culture you look, you're going to find balance at the center of, of their ideals. It's exactly what kind of balance, what's the form of balance, what's the model of balance. And I imagined, and, and again, this may be going far too, far too far, I imagined that this might be a way of us really comparing cultures in a way that we can't right now, comparing intellectual structures in Chinese history and Japanese intellectual culture with medieval, with early modern, with 17th century, with Darwin, Darwin in the 19th century. You know, each of these, it seems to me, each of these leaps in the way in conception are somehow linked to expansions of notions of what balance can be. As I listen to you speak, I wonder if in any way, this may sound odd, but in any way you were sort of personally inspired by, in your desire to read medieval texts in new ways, the example of medieval scholars who desired to see the world in new ways. Uh, yes. Um, I, again, I came late to medieval history and I came late to medieval intellectual history. Um, and when I came to it, I had the same impression that most people did, that this was hopelessly abstract, that scholasticism, that how many angels dance on the head of a pin, etc., etc. So I was immediately impressed when I actually got into the text with how deep they were and how thoughtful they were. The thing about scholasticism is, and the problem with scholasticism and the glory of scholasticism is that they didn't focus on any one topic. This is why they didn't really get very far. Uh, so a person like Jean Bridin, uh, he wrote on, ge on geology, he wrote on ethics, he wrote on politics, he wrote on logic, he wrote on, I mean, and, and you, one after another of these giants, uh, Albertus Magnus, I mean, they, they occupy entire shelves of the library. Uh, and they're on everything, on weather, on, on, from the small to the large. Um, so yes, I, was I am inspired by them. I still am inspired by them. And I'm inspired by the fact that they're, that they're given so, so short shrift in, in the general understanding of, of, uh, of the history of, uh, intellect of ideas and intellectual thought. May I ask a, a final question? Um, from a modern historian, and of course a modern historian would say something like this, what you are describing seems to be a very modern way of thinking about the world. It's the development of relativity, effectively. Yes. In the markets <clears throat> in geology and so on. Is there a slight danger here of us, or of medieval historians, uh, reading a teleology, or of modern historians reading what you're doing as a prehistory of what we all know to be now modern, rational, enlightenment thought. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind if they thought that. Um, something happens in this period, um, and you can see one of the reasons why I even read these texts is because historians of science before me over the past century have picked them out and said, hmm, look what's happening in this period. Uh, this is interesting. Um, without quite recognizing what the distinct, they recognize the innovation in it, but they they haven't they hadn't really recognized what brought them together and what linked them all together, uh, and they recognize this in part because they seemed to point towards the the present. 
they seemed to, to be able to think of the world in a way that was more recognizable to the way we think about it. Um, hierarchy is very, very uh, contrary to the way we constantly think about the, cu currently think about the world. Um, we basically live in a relativized world, especially we, we scholars, we, we, we professors. Um, we don't think that the world has a perfect teleology, a perfect structure to it created eternally. We think that things move and things change. And that's the essence of this new kind of thinking that comes in in the late 13th century. They seem to have managed to replace the essential idea of hierarchy, which is built into medieval thought, with a very new concept of a living relativity where everything is shifting and changing and ch changing in meaning as well as changing in position constantly, and that's what the world is made out of. And yet, isn't there an irony here that the model collapses? I don't know if it's an irony. It's a, it's an, it seems to me to be, this is not something I suspected. Um, I continued to read texts that I thought I would find the same kind of innovation and, and, and the same models of innovation, and all of a sudden, they weren't there. When was that? It seems to have been, this is hard to say directly, but it seems to have been, uh, it's certainly, the texts are from the 1360s, 1370s, 1380s. Uh, they don't seem to have that same kind of impulsion, the same kind of spirit as the texts from the 1330s, 40s, and 50s. And the thing that comes in between, the, the, the thing that the, 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 the giant, the elephant in the room, is the plague. Um, which had enormous consequences, not just social, not just demographic, with a third, maybe a third, maybe even more than a third of the European population uh, dying as a result of the plague. But profound economic consequences and profound consequences in thought, uh, as we should ex expect. Uh, one of the themes of my work is how closely the highest thought, the seemingly most abstract thought, is connected to living the living conditions and living reality, and specifically economic realities. Joel Kay, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Mm -hmm.